0: Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Luciano Floridi. He is the OII's Professor of Philosophy and Ethics of Information at the University of Oxford, where he is also the Director of the Digital Ethics Lab of the Oxford Internet Institute and Professorial Fellow of Exeter College. He is a Turing Fellow of the Alan Alan Turing Institute and Chair of its Data Ethics Group. His research concerns primarily digital ethics, that is information and computer ethics, and the philosophy of information and the philosophy of technology. His other research interests include epistemology, philosophy of logic, and the history and philosophy of skepticism. So, Dr. Floridi, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a real honor to everyone.
1: Thank you for having me over. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. So, I mean, uh, I invited you on the show basically to talk about some broad topics on the philosophy of information because uh, would you say that philosophy of information is a recent branch of philosophy, or do you think that we could trace it back, uh, I don't know, some centuries or millennia or something like that?
1: Yes, so um, I think we can take uh, two views here. Uh, one is um, the actual field, the label, uh, it uh, is very recent. Um, I'm happy to say that I, uh, I try to establish it as a, as a branch of philosophy, um, and um, to make sure that we as philosophers but not only philosophers concentrate on issues that are related to information in a sort of uh, more focused uh, conceptually rigorous way scientifically informed way so the philosophy of information is something that I'm, uh, I'm proudly uh, sort of presenting as an area of uh, inquiry that could be compared to the philosophy of mind the philosophy of language uh, and so on so that's a new enterprise at the same time as we know uh, there's hardly ever anything very new uh, in philosophy and so if we want to look at the philosophy of information as something that philosophers have also been interested in the past although not under that label maybe not with the same focus Well, we can go all the way back to Plato, really. Um, uh, When uh, when Plato, for example, is talking about the theory of forms uh, or uh, when Aristotle is uh, talking uh, about the uh, problems in uh, logic or in his um, uh, aesthetics, uh, you can reinterpret some of the things that even Greek philosophers have been discussing in informational terms. So, in a way... uh, it would be like saying, look, uh, information has always done a lot of work uh, in philosophy. It's just that, as I said in the past, it was more like the Cinderella uh, in the kitchen. We didn't see her uh, and it is time for us to uh, pay uh, due respect to such a fundamental topic and therefore such a fundamental branch of philosophy. Hence my attempt to make it part of the general uh, Sort of um, approach to philosophical issues. The last point, uh, if I may, is that uh, of course anyone today, uh, that the label, the concept, the, the, the field is uh, available, can do philosophy of information one way or another. Um, uh, my personal way of doing philosophy of information may be very different from someone else's way, uh, but that's a different uh, story. It's like saying now that we have the, the philosophy of language. My philosophy of language is different from yours, so my philosophy of mind is different from yours. That is normal, and that's what happens in a, in a good environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so, and about information, what does it mean exactly? Because I would imagine that since Plato and other ancient philosophers that... Uh, there was some reconceptualization, right? Because information doesn't mean nowadays for us, particularly with modern physics and uh, neuroscience, probably uh, what it meant back then for the Greeks and, and others, correct?
1: Yes, no, you're right. And uh, I think here a few distinctions are crucial. Uh, the distinction between, uh, first of all, information and data, and then the distinction between syntax and semantics and then there's further distinction between what we mean by information. So if we start from uh, data versus information, normally the data are considered to be the ingredients that we put together in order to get information. For example, a bunch of um, uh, points on uh, a uh, Cartesian uh, diagram on Cartesian axis, they could be meaning a lot of different things. Those are what we call data points, mm-hmm. but the information we extract from that, that's a completely different story. Uh, of course, as I said, is uh, the ingredients are there. We pre- prepare, we uh, massage, we interpret them in a particular way and we extract information. Once we have data as something that we use in order to generate information, so uh, information is uh, data, um, then we need to put the data in a particular structure, the syntax. How the data are not randomly generated, but they have uh, particular sort of um, recurrent patterns for example, or a particular trajectory it might be that uh, uh, that is a curve uh, that is going up or down is increasing or decreasing etc that syntax is also fundamental so information has data plus structure syntax, mm-hmm. but then we have to give it some meaning what does it mean to us as opposed to someone else? So you might have all the data in the world uh, put together in a particular picture, and then someone can see that uh, as uh, just a a piece of cloth for someone else. That is a flag. So my meaning is different from yours. My interpretation might be slightly different from yours. So data put together with a syntax uh, and then interpreted, that is already some kind of what we normally mean by information. At that point, we need to distinguish between information in the strong, factual, semantic sense versus other kinds of information. For example, a piece of music. A piece of music is a lot of data, sounds, mm-hmm. you say, in a particular structure with a particular meaning. Maybe it's uh, a song that I recognize or uh, my national, uh, the national anthem of my country is it true or false? Well, that's the wrong question to ask. It's music, music is not true or false. But when it comes to uh, data with syntax and semantics about what I had for breakfast this morning, well, that is true or false. And that's what I call a strong sense of semantic information. Information in the ordinary semantic factual sense means that it has to be true. Last example, uh, imagine if I, I'm a doctor you come to see me and um you ask me about something that you know you have and uh, i give you uh, some information i say oh that's a that's a flu uh, so then you come back and then say well doctor you were wrong you, that was not a flu it was something else it was i said well you didn't ask for true information you asked me for information i mean you will be really upset why because normally what we mean by information in the main sense semantic factual is something that is true it works with the world so uh, the debate is open Uh, people have been questioning Oh, does information have to be true or not i think it's what we mean by it in an ordinary sense that makes uh, us decide that yes it has to be true if it isn't it's called misinformation disinformation (laughs) so it's something else
0: yeah. Uh, so would you say that there's sort of an uh, hierarchical organization from data and information up to semantic information and then even, I, I don't know if you want to touch on this point, but uh, what we call knowledge, because that's another kind of thing, right? Indeed.
1: I think uh, uh, there is a uh, um, progressive um inclusion of features um maybe hierarchical uh is a good word maybe not i i don't know but essentially it's like um starting from the simple data adding some structure syntactic data or syntactically structured data adding meaning semantically meaningful syntactically structured data and you keep going up as it were in complexity or refinement And then, uh, if it is true, then you can talk about strong, factually, okay, semantic Mm -hmm. information. What's the difference between that and knowing something? Mm -hmm. Well, the difference is that uh, you have to have some way of explaining, justifying, I prefer to say, accounting for that information. So imagine uh, we get all the way up to um, Pythagoras' theorem, just to have a super classic. Well, I can have uh, Pythagoras theorem as the data, the syntax and the semantics, and it's all true, but I may have no way of proving it. I can't tell you why that is the case. I just know that you know, if you do this and that, that's what you get. But someone, say a mathematician, will come and say, no, no, I can tell you that there's this proof. In fact, there are many, many proofs for Pythagoras theorem. But well, the mathematician knows I am more like a parrot. I just repeat what I have been uh, given as, let's say, the statement of Pythagoras' theorem. So the difference between uh, um, owing or stating some semantic information versus knowing is that the expert can provide more and more justifications, reasons for accounting of, that piece of information that the known expert, the someone who does not know but is merely informed cannot.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so uh, so we have semantic information and then we have to upgrade it to knowledge in some way, right? So how, how do we get from one place to the other exactly?
1: Well, normally what we what we do is to inquire, ask uh, the classic why question and put that semantic information into a network of other reasons why what is the case is the case. So if someone tells, tells you, uh, look, um, uh, there's been a um, um, uh, a virus, for example, given these days, um, uh, problem in a city. So how do you know? Well, I just read that on a newspaper. Uh, okay, so you have the information. Why is that the case? Say, I don't know. I just read that on, on a newspaper. Well, that's not knowledge. That's more like having a piece of information. The medical uh, team will probably know why there is uh, that particular virus in their city, and they will know also what to do about it. So uh, you move from information to knowledge by adding either what we normally call justification explanation as i said i prefer to uh, talk about um, an account or why that is the case meaning that you put it into a network of questions and answers so that if i ask you more questions you can provide me more answers the expert is someone who knows is someone to whom you can ask a lot of questions and it will keep you keep giving you more and more answers someone who doesn't even have the first answer Is merely informed, doesn't have knowledge. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. And so, this also connects with science and the scientific method, right? And, uh, I mean, how do we know that we really know something about the world itself by applying these methods? So, that's another uh, question that uh, philosophy of information inquires about.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, So science uh, is not just, as people imagine, collecting a lot of information about the world or the universe. Well, we may have a lot of information about, say, uh, the sun, uh, the solar system, uh, black holes, but that's not yet science. Science tries to explain. It tries to find laws that connect phenomena in overall organizing sort of principles so that you know why something happens if something else happens or what would have happened if something else had happened now the trivial example of the billiard balls hitting each other uh and so on well causal explanations for example they tell you more than oh that's that's a fact well facts have been around for a long time is what you do in terms of uh, making sense and explaining the universe that makes the difference between observing something and doing science about it. We can observe, for example, a lot uh, of what happens in the brain. Now we have plenty of non-invasive methodologies to do that, but we have very little explanation. That's why science is still uh, at an early stage. Neuroscience is still developing because we don't have for the brain what we might have, for example, in quantum physics for um, the way in which some particles work. And even there, there's so much more that we need to explain. We don't quite know. We have the phenomena. We can collect the information. But how we organize that into a meaningful and explainable uh, um, overall picture uh, of that topic? Well, that's, that's the scientific sort of enterprise.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just before I move on to another specific question, uh, wouldn't you say then that uh, in, in the philosophy of information, we are also dealing with an area that works at the intersection of different philosophical branches. Because uh, as I'm hearing you talk, uh, I guess that... uh, We can say that it has to do also with um, metaphysics, for example, the metaphysics of information, what is information, Uh, and then we can move up to, for example, philosophy of mind and talk about what is knowledge and things like that. So, I mean, it's, it's really a very broad area in philosophy, right?
1: You're right. Uh, if you remember when I said that uh, there are different ways of doing philosophy of information, uh, you can a- either take a historical view no, try to look at bits of philosophy of information from the Greeks uh, onwards. You can look at a very specific branch of um, philosophy um, in the same way as we have, for example, philosophy of logic or uh, philosophy of language, um, philosophy of mind, as you said, or as in my case, you can actually take it as a new way of doing philosophy so when I do philosophy of information firsthand, not when I'm wearing the hat of uh, one philosopher among many others, saying, look, you no, know, we have another block here. Maybe we can also teach a course on the philosophy of information, like many other courses. But when I do philosophy firsthand, I treat philosophy of information as a way of doing philosophy full stop. To me, uh, and I said this in the past, it is the philosophy of our time for our time. It is what we should be concentrating on today in order to understand what's happening to the world, what's happening to us, what's happening to the digital revolution, and how this affects our way of thinking, therefore our way of doing philosophy. But as I said before, this is a very personal way of doing philosophy of, uh, of information. It reminds me of um, some other uh, philosophers in the past who used to do philosophy of language, not just as a branch of philosophy among many others but as the philosophy uh, to be done at that time. So in the same way as you can interpret philosophy language as the philosophy of your time, uh, likewise, I uh, have the same approach to philosophy of information. Uh, To me, I approach uh, metaphysics, um, epistemology, ethics uh, from uh, an informational perspective. And therefore my philosophy of information extends to ontology, to philosophy of language, to logic as well. Uh, all the way down to the philosophy of your mind, personal identity, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So, if we follow your approach, maybe it is an approach that is not that interested in just looking at one philosophical bucket, but trying to bring together all the different branches that we have nowadays, and also respecting the the science that we have and the information or the knowledge that we get from science, right?
1: I think so. And uh, if you look at great um, uh, simplified categorization of the history of Western philosophy, Mm -hmm. it's easy to say that a lot of uh, Greek and um, uh, medieval philosophy is pretty much concerned mostly with metaphysics. I mean, it's about what the world is like, what it should be like, what you could make of it, and so on. Who we are, and so on. Uh, anything else depends on the metaphysics. Then, uh, then you can tell. Uh, again, I'm really providing a, a huge sketch here. Then, from say Renaissance, but above all from Descartes onwards, um, metaphysics starts becoming less and less important. And the primary way of doing philosophy is by looking at epistemology. It's really about the theory of knowledge and how knowledge not shapes our way of understanding the nature of the world. So your metaphysics will depend on your epistemology, not the other way around. And then you get all the way, again, oversimplifying to uh, end of modernity, beginning of contemporary philosophy, so to speak, uh, especially, you know, Husserl, uh, Frege, Russell, um, uh, Wittgenstein, Heidegger. And it's all about language. So it's not it's not about reality it's not about knowledge of reality but it's about the language that shapes your knowledge that shapes how we perceive reality and so the primary um focus becomes semantics philosophy language hermeneutics and you can tell that uh, anything else that depending on your epistemology your metaphysics on shall we say broadly understood your philosophy language what i'm suggesting and i i'm ashamed of the no, perspective so broad, so forgive me, but what I'm forgetting is is a fourth step, saying after the philosophy of language as the first philosophy, we should really move to the concept of information as more fundamental than either language, knowledge, or reality. It's through information that we uh, understand all the other three before. So putting philosophy of information at the center of, or the foundation for, any other philosophical enterprise and so there will be a fourth step, as it were, away from metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy language, hermeneutics, to a philosophy of uh, information as first philosophy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, asking now about the um, f- uh, philosophy of mind aspect of, uh, of the philosophy of information, do you think that uh, nowadays there is still any version of uh, mind-brain dualism that is defensible according to the philosophy of information
1: I think that that, that dualism um, has um, well let me put it this way has been either misinterpreted or mispresented uh, mm-hmm. mm, it would be like to me the, the dualism mind and brain is a bit like the, the dualism between two branches of the same tree and if you don't know that it is the same tree, you actually start thinking that branch A and B are sort of uh, independent. They're separate. They're two, and you start wondering how they can possibly coordinate so much all the time. When one flowers, the other flowers. When one is sick, the other one is sick. It's a, it's a, it looks like magic until you realize that, well, I mean, they belong to the same tree. so whether we look at ourselves, to put it differently, as um, uh, biological organisms, uh, brains, and so on, or as mental entities, semantic uh, engine, and so on. These are two different levels of abstraction of the same entity. The question is whether one or the other is, or many others indeed, is preferable with respect to the question you are asking. So what's the purpose here? If the purpose is to explain our sort of mental life, then we better talk about mind and semantics and the world of meanings and so on. Talking about brain waves would not help. But for example, if we are in a sort of surgical context, talking about mind would be totally useless. Semantics would not be the right place. I would like to know which area of the brain has been affected by that particular, for example, tumor. So once again, It's not like in absolute terms, is it a mind, is it a brain? The question is really, the point is, why are you asking that question, what for? The purpose determines the level of abstraction at which I'm analyzing the system and gives me a particular model. To me, mind, brain are two models of the same system. So I don't see the dualism as being justified, but I don't see it as unjustified either. It looks to me more like, well, it's a methodological choice, whether we like to concentrate on the brain biological side in this particular context or the mental semantic meaningful intentional side in another context and this is not relativism it's just a matter of making clear what for because uh, as i said models are comparable depending on how much and how well they fulfill a particular purpose so it is not true that oh then anything goes no That question has been uh, asked for a particular purpose. If I know the purpose and I know the question, then I know also which question will require what answer. And to me, brain and mind are two answers fighting for the same question. Unless you tell me the purpose, I don't know which one is right. Mm
0: -hmm. So uh, nowadays there are different scientists, like for example, cognitive scientists and neuroscientists and people who do work in AI that talk about the brain as a computer. Do do you agree with that kind of metaphor and why?
1: I think that metaphor uh, is sometimes helpful. Uh, uh, There are contexts in um, uh, neuroscience uh, where um, computational approaches to um, uh, brain processes are incredibly enlightening in terms of better understanding of what is going on. I think we should also be extremely careful not to take that metaphor too seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a computer and a brain are so much different uh, in terms of what's going on. Um, uh, One is an analog machine, the other one is digital. One is continuous, one is uh, discrete. Uh, One works with an internal clock, the other one doesn't. Um, You can keep going in terms of uh, the, these analogies. So the question becomes, is it helpful or is it not? I think in the past it was interesting to look at the brain uh, from, uh, uh, from this particular metaphorical um, angle. Mm-hmm. I have the impression that it has become incre- increasingly uh, constraining as a metaphor, and I'm worried that some people actually take it too seriously. Uh, seriously in terms of science, the brain is not a computer, and the computer is not a brain. Uh, in the same way in, in which my uh, digestive uh, system is not an input-process-output mechanism. You can model it that way, uh, but there's only that much you can get out of the uh, metaphor. Um, today, with AI um, and the lack of uh, proper language to describe these new forms of agency that are successful and yet totally stupid, the risk of um, being too much anthropomorphic in our descriptions are too serious to indulge too much in metaphorical language. So I would warn anyone who speaks of the brain as if it were a computer not to use that metaphor too much. Uh, You might actually be taken seriously and there will be a disservice to science.
0: Mm-hmm. So, would you say that it's important for us to not conflate the model because we can create uh, mathematical models of the brain and or computational models of it with the thing itself, let's say, or what it really is or how it works?
1: Well, absolutely, but that is true through, throughout uh Uh, Our epistemological enterprise. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we build models, we abstract some features, meaning that we uh, disregard some, we concentrate on others, we simplify, uh, we normally aggregate data, for example, and so on. So, what we get as a result is something that would be preferably described as um, correct or incorrect with respect to what for, but it's not something that we should take as a, almost like a picture or a photograph of what we have been uh, uh, discussing. Let me uh, take a very simple example. Suppose you know, we want to have a model of a car. Mm-hmm. I mean, Any, you know, an, an ordinary car you know, um, that you drive uh, on a daily basis, how many models of that car, as in you know, description of that car, are there? A boundless number. I mean you could describe that as a particular model by a particular maker, you could describe it as a particular no, a family car, You uh, could be described in terms of price, in terms of consumption, um, in terms of age, in terms of uh, um, emotional value attached to it. Maybe it's your grandfather's car, so, well where is the limit, there is no limit. The question is what model is the right model, the correct model for the question you were asking in the first place. Okay. Let me give you a completely different example for the philosophers who are listening. Remember the Theseus ship, the one that you change planks and so on? Well, I really find that example at the same time enlightening and entertaining for the following reason. Imagine, it's the tax man who is asking the question. Is that your ship, the Theseus? And Theseus says, no, 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 I changed all the planks. Like, I don't care. I'm gonna get the tax on this ship. You change everything. Is still your own? Is your ownership is the same? Suppose is a collector asking that question. Is it the same ship? No, I change all the planks. Sorry, doesn't the price has collapsed immediately? It's not the same. I wanted to have the original piece. You change all the planks. It's worthless. Mm-hmm. The, the joke uh, I think it's a Polish one. I'm not sure uh, that says. Oh, this is my uh, grandfather's axe. Uh, my dad changed the the blade. Uh, and I uh, change the handle. Is it the same? Depends on the purpose. Mm-hmm. The building at the corner uh, used to be a hospital, now it's a school. Is it the same? Why are you asking that question? To go there is the same. To see what happens inside is completely different. Also, always right? Give me the question. Give me the purpose. Why are you asking the question? Then we have a talk. In other words, just to finish, in a, Context where there is no level of abstraction that has been set up, anything goes, only messy answers, and we can have conversations for the rest of our lives. We will never reach a particular conclusion, not even about whether we agree or or disagree. In other words, there's a stage where philosophy is not even wrong, as they used to say.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So, let's get now into the ethics of information, because that's another thing that the philosophy of information cares about, and it has a real impact on our lives, at least some of the questions that we ask there. Um, so, in in broad terms, what would you say is important about the potential impact that information and communication uh, might have or already have on our modern lives?
1: I think there's a lot to be said here, Uh, but let me try to to be short if I can. Um, So a lot of the history of ethics is a history of uh, agents, people who do things. So the normal question we ask in an introduction to ethics is, um, for example, who should I be? What should I do? Why should I do it? These are typical I questions. I'm the Mm -hmm. agent, I'm doing something, am I doing the right thing? Am I the right kind of person doing the right thing? And why should I be doing that instead of something else? That's the beginning of no typical one-on-one introduction to ethics. I've been arguing that in recent times, uh, maybe not for the past half a century or so, Mm -hmm. ethics has been increasingly concerned with the receiver of the action, the patient so to speak and it's not just in medical terms, but also, for example, in bioethics, in environmental ethics, in business ethics, in information ethics, as I uh, define it, what happens to not the agent, but the receiver of the action. Now, next step. This can be modeled as sender, message, receiver. Mm -hmm. The message is the action, the sender is the agent, the receiver is the patient. So a lot of discussion has moved from the sending agent to the receiving patient this is good news this is the way we should be doing it more ecological that's great asking what's good for you in terms of my action not what's good for me in terms of my action but putting you at the center next chapter chapter three so to speak how can we put each other at the center now the patient the agent i'm always both i'm a sender of messages, but also a receiver of messages. So this distinction, chapter one and chapter two, doesn't quite work. Correct. So what I've been arguing uh, for the past few years is that what we should develop is an ethics not of the sender, good old style, not of the receiver, more recently, but of the relationship between the two. To give you a simple example, it's not the ethics of Juliet, and it's not the ethics of Romeo is the ethics of their love. It's not mm-hmm. Mary and Peter, but it's the ethics of their marriage. It's not this party or that party, it's the ethics of politics. It's not about A or B, but the relationship that builds A and B. Mm-hmm. At that point, no, not you and me, but our friendship. That's what is at the center. And that's the ethics of. Now that becomes an ethics of relations. And the last point becomes a bit more metaphysical, because it means looking at the agents and the patients as nodes in a network. What matters are the links, because the links makes the, net, the nodes. In the past, we have seen ourselves more like uh, mechanisms where you've got lots of things that come together and build more complex uh, entities. I've been arguing again, more ontologically, that we should be looking at the world as, as a network, not like a mechanism, In a network, the nodes are constituted by the relations, the links. So taking care of the links means taking care of the nodes. Last point, for example, in politics, that's the last book I'm writing now. We shouldn't be concentrating only or primarily on the res publica, the public thing, but we should be concentrating on the ratio publica, the rational but also relational way in which we build our society. That's the fabric of society that needs to be taken care of by politics, then everything else, all the agents and all the patients emerge healthier or less healthy in terms of what we take care when we take care of the relations. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. Uh, and these agents and patients you are talking about you're not only referring to humans right you're also including uh, machines ai systems and other artificial agents that that already exist or are close in the future
1: indeed i mean uh, an agent is any anything or anyone that can output an action i mean it could be a volcano okay Mm -hmm. We just don't treat a volcano as a, a moral agent because we know it has no freedom, no intentionality, no ability to change. But it could be a dog. I mean, a dog is already some something that we can treat as a moral agent so much that we can punish a dog, we can educate a dog, we can change the behavior of a dog and so on. So I have a very inclusive sense of what a moral agent can look like. It could be a robot, if it is sufficiently autonomous, interactive, able to change its uh, sort of behavior. It doesn't mean that a dog and and a robot are like us, but they can output actions that we declare to be morally good or bad. And therefore they are source of moral actions. At the other side, at the end of the process, who can be a uh, receiver? I think the whole universe is on the other side. I mean, a river, as we know in a sort of environmental ethics, could be something that could be negatively affected by the wrong moral actions. We can pollute a whole river, destroy a form of life. You can pollute a whole valley. In fact, you can destroy with a nuclear bomb a whole planet. That is morally wrong, shall we say. And it shows that on the other side, the whole universe is part of the receiving uh, entity that. My link is affecting. So, when I say, look, any entity by default, initially in an overridable sense, has a right to exist for what it is, all I'm saying is, you know, in a very Neoplatonic way or Spinozian way, say we should be mindful of everything, the whole reality. There's nothing in the universe that is below a threshold such that that thing deserves to be disregarded, deserves disrespect. I don't think there is such thing. Now, of course, there is the problem of evil, but evil, as far as I'm concerned, is a matter of links, not a matter of entities. There is no node that is evil independently of the links that make it so. So having a more sort of uh, Augustinian platonic idea of evil as non-being, I don't find evil as something that is uh, worth my hate. What is worth my hate, morally speaking, Is whatever relations generate the evil
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, and in this case and if we talk about artificial agents then uh, it is particularly relevant from an ethical perspective because we are creating and programming them right so I mean they wouldn't exist uh, without a purpose or if they weren't created by us it's it's not like a dog or an animal or a tree or whatever
1: Indeed, and uh, so we have higher responsibilities because we are designing these particular nodes in the network called artificial agents, and depending on how we design them, we could design them as uh, sources of good actions or sources of evil actions, but do not make them responsible. Responsibility comes with a mental life, with intentionality, Mm -hmm. with semantics, with intelligence. These are mechanisms, but they are sufficiently autonomous interactive able to change their behavior depending on a feed- feedback mechanism such that if we design them wrongly they can generate a lot of uh, evil uh, outcomes a lot of pain for example well i mean if you create a machine that create not generates a lot of pain pointlessly gratuitously just for the sake of evil outcomes who is responsible for that the machine really oh but it's autonomous well but i i build it that way I, I make sure that that would be the future of their machine. Now of course there are unexpected consequences. There are mm. mistakes made. Well at that point we decrease their responsibility as we always do to the point of, or maybe zero responsibility on the human side and we turn off immediately that machine because it's a bad uh, construct is the wrong artifact to have around. To me responsi- not accountability but responsibility Is always a human business because it requires a mental life, intentionality, and the freedom to be able to change your future for better. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: And then I guess that there are also other aspects to this question, like, for example, the kind of relationships that we might be able to establish with these beings. I mean, they can even become our companions sometimes, right? So that could... Uh, fundamentally, change also the kinds of relationships that we establish with those beings and with other people. Uh, and then there's also the question of uh, if they will uh, any time in the future be able to become sentient. And so we would have to be a little bit more careful about how we deal with them.
1: I would like to distinguish these two questions uh, okay, because okay. one is, uh, uh, is scientific, the other one is science fiction. Mm-hmm. scientific question is how we interact with uh, artificial agents that are built to make sure that we uh, have uh, some kind of a empathic uh, emotional involvement. They are built to generate in us that projection. It's a little bit like uh, the old uh, toys, uh, maybe um, the, 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 the doll or, or the, the plastic soldier. And now, we used to, uh, we have uh, a normal tendency to project emotional, intellectual, human characteristics on anything we play with and now, even more so if what is in front of us has been built on, on purpose to trigger uh, that projection. So if I build something that uh, looks cute, uh, may sound as if you were suffering, if you don't treat it well, it may no, uh, issue noises that uh, make us think that is either happy or unhappy. Well, the normal reaction from anyone would be to start treating that entity as if we were, uh, for example, a, a little dog or a little puppet or something. It doesn't mean that there is anything more behind the interface in terms of real not, uh, mental life, emotional, or even biological interactions. So that's one thing. It's a problem with interface. Do we like it, do we not? Are we going to allow to build these interfaces in such a way that they trick us into thinking that that is for example, a good companion for elderly people who feel alone and you know they can stroke this little thing, they can uh, take care of that little thing and so on. That's one story. And I'm quite uh, careful here that I think that there are limits that we should not um, uh, disrespect. We should be careful about how much we want to pull this in the direction of um, uh, making people emotionally uh, dependent on simple artifacts. I would not like to be attached to my dishwasher. I should not be attached to something that is like a dishwasher, it's just that it sounds very happy when it's doing the dishes, okay? Or poorest when I you know, put extra soap in it. It's a bit weird. Um, that is in order to maintain the authenticity of a mental life. The other story is oh, when they become sentient. That is Hollywood. Uh, and I don't think we should indulge into Hollywood scenarios. Uh, I think it's a it's a bad habit of philosophy to uh, work into the what if, when the what if is science fiction. Oh, but it, it, unless you no, know, you know, people argue. Well, it can be illustrative. It can be uh, a way of uh, generating more ideas. Well, there are more realistic contexts where real problems uh, affect us on a daily basis. So, the day um, some magic sci-fi AI becomes like me, well, it would be like me. So, I should treat it like me. It's not a question. It's just tautology.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, let me just ask you about one last topic because I don't want to take much more of your time, Dr. Floridi, and then I might have some follow-ups to it. Uh, So, uh, we've already talked about the relationship between uh, humans and other artificial beings, but then nowadays, because we have the internet, for example, uh, there are other ways by which our relationships among humans are changing a little bit. So, for example, in your work, you talk about the infosphere and about uh, new selves that we can create online, for example. Uh, So would you like to tell us a little bit about this and uh, since we are talking about the the ethics of information and the philosophy of information. uh, In what ways do you think that the relationships between people you focus on Uh, might be changed by these information and communication technologies?
1: Thank you. Yes, this is a very important uh, question. And um, if we go back to the analogy of uh, looking at reality as a network, um, and therefore to the idea that the nodes are created, constituted by the relations, if you change Mm -hmm. the nature and the quantity and quality of the relations, you're also changing the nodes. Uh, Out of this particular analogy, if we look at ourselves as uh, also being constituted by the way in which we interact with anyone else with the rest of the world, with our past, with our future, what we can afford uh, uh, to uh, develop in terms of information channels and so on, well, you immediately realize that uh, uh, living in in, in in a space made of information or infosphere, constantly being now on life, as I said uh, since some time ago, neither online nor offline, but constantly moving in between uh, in a sort of mix and match, partly analog, partly digital, spending more time uh, uh, in connection with people that you've never met, maybe, in real life and so on. Well, that is changing all the uh, ways in which the self is being uh, shaped, um, transformed, uh, can actually make plans about uh, the future. So what I like in all all this is the enormous amount of extra plasticity, more opportunities that we are being offered by technologies. For example, I could become someone who is um, incredibly interested and expert on a Swedish rock band something that I could have never done in the past because I would have never been able to, say, join their group, listen to their music, uh, maybe participate in those concerts from far away. Maybe I'm from a small village in Italy and so on. So all that is now, at our, uh, so, um, it's available. It's uh, out there uh, just a click away. The trouble is that what we are given is also the risk that we are running because the plasticity is so extended, and because we know that we are, as humans, we're very adaptable, Uh, we can be influenced very easily, Uh, we are very fragile, what the same kind of um, opportunities are also risks. We could be manipulated, we could be influenced from the wrong reasons, we could be taken for a ride, uh, and politically, socially, in terms of taste, in terms of choices, and so i've highlighted both the, the the opportunities and risks here because i think that a proper design and proper education and proper socio-political rules could send us in in the right direction and say look this is an amazing opportunity for humanity but the wrong kind of rules the wrong kind of education or lack of education uh, a lack of critical approach and so on generates the fake news the political uh, wrongdoing uh, the social mistakes social panic, for example, these days uh, because of, uh, of the virus and so on. And I think we should fight the, the negative malleability that digital technologies provide and endorse and support the good malleability. It means, and I close here, that if you describe an individual as work in progress, like a, an open text, a book that you are writing yourself as you move along, well, the more opportunities you have to write that book, to make that work pro- uh, in progress, say a a work of art, the better. So affordances, opportunities, great possibilities. The more you nail that to a profile, you're just an interface, all I want from you is either your money, your vote or your support, then you have the Kantian problem. You're using humans as means, not as ends, and you are transforming a great opportunity into essentially a prison. But well, that is, to me, the risk that we're running these days as we build these technologies, uh, literally, for future generations.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and this will be my last question. Would you say then that uh, it is not technology itself that is malicious, but simply perhaps the ways we deal with it, we apply it in the world, and then what we have to do to properly put the the different kinds of technology into practice is to really uh, have some experience with it and learn it, and then educate people about the best ways to use it.
1: I think that uh, we we need to be careful here, because um, philosophy is never neutral. is is always charged with values. The problem is that people stop here and say, okay, of course, you know, the knife, you can cut the bread or can kill someone, uh, depends on how you use it. But that's not true either. You need another step. Not only technology is not neutral, technology is always charged, is always, no, sorry, mostly, often double charged and And that's the last step is double charge in one way or another so the knife it is not true that every knife for example is double charge you can kill someone or cut the bread because the knife that you get on an airline for example which is this small no blade no sharp no nothing is just to spread some butter you can't you cannot kill someone with that i mean it would be literally impossible uh or shall we say very very hard (laughs) But a bayonet, which could be a kind of knife, that is meant to kill someone. It's not meant to cut the bread and it's not meant to spread the butter on the slice of bread. So technology is not neutral, is charged, is double charged and it's double charged with a bias, with a preference. It's up to us to build the right technology with the right values. And then when we have it, to use it properly. So for example, the internet, classic, not big technology, if we want to generalize. Uh, it's um, double charge, good and bad, but mostly for good. I mean, it's you know, more communication, more information, more contacts among people. We can organize ourselves better. We can coordinate. Well, it seems to be largely something for good, but it can only be used for bad as well. Yes, absolutely. So it's up to us. Design the right technology and use it properly. That is an entirely hundred percent human endeavor, the responsibilities are only ours and no one else. Technology has no responsibility. It has values embedded. That's a different story.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Floridi, let's end the interview on that note. Just before we go, would you. you like to mention some places on the internet where it would be easier for people to get in touch with your work?
1: Absolutely. There are a couple of websites. If you just uh, type Google, uh, search uh, my name and surname, you will find uh, quite a lot of things. Uh, There's also a YouTube channel where I hope we will host uh, this video. Uh, It contains more than 100 videos, uh, lectures, um, interviews. So I hope that that is quite helpful. And then maybe last, uh, the OUP website where uh, most of my books are available.
0: Mm -hmm. By the way, uh, uh, earlier in the interview, you mentioned that you are writing a new book. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Give us a teaser or something like that?
1: So, um, to anyone who wants to read something, I would strongly recommend uh, the following few things. There's a very short book called uh, Information, a Very Short Introduction. It's a tiny book. Uh, You can read it in in a weekend and it's meant for the general public. Then there's something a little bit more intellectual, again, for the general public, called The Fourth Revolution, How the Infosphere is Changing Human uh, Lives, and uh, I hope it's uh, of interest to the general public. If you're more philosophical, uh, maybe the first half of my most recent book, The Logical Information, uh, tells you about what philosophy should be like today. Uh, uh, But the new book that I'm writing is uh, on the politics of information and uh, how uh, the information revolution, the digital revolution, is changing our way of socializing and doing politics and how we should reconsider and uh, reinvent a little bit politics in the 21st century.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you know when it will be out or not yet?
1: Strangely enough the Italian version is coming out uh, the English version will probably take another year.
0: Okay okay great so uh, I will be expecting that book because I love the other ones, all of the, of the books that you mentioned. So, And I recommend it to all my, to my audience and all my followers. So, Dr. Floridi, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. And it was a real pleasure to everyone.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, uh, thank you uh, for, for your patience, for the wonderful questions. This has been uh, quite a, a rewarding uh, experience. Many thanks.
0: Okay, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I've got a lot of new uh, supporters of the show recently. That's great. And for for the people out there who are watching or coming to my channel for the first time... Uh, I've been doing a lot of interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields, and to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please pay a a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there, any amount you feel comfortable with. Uh, and if you prefer PayPal there are also links to several monthly subscription systems and also a link for a one time or several times big donations if you want whatever you prefer otherwise and if you like what i'm doing please share it leave a like and hit the subscription button i would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and paypal supporters the main ones karen Litzke and blanchett Perga larson lau guerrero francis ford hans frederick sunda jane ricardo vladimiro craig Healy, adam castle olaf alex jonathan wiesel David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollisi, Henry Kalanias, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetriou, uh, Robert Windiger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Max Belby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas trumbull Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge espinha Phil Cavanaugh, corey Clark, Mark Blythe, my producers: Izar webby Rosie, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak e Osborne, Dr. Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano and Matthew Lavender, and also my executive producer, Michel Ruzieski. Thank you for all.